use that today. It would be an appropriate use of our Sabbath, which brings us to our sermon text today. Wasn't that a wonderful transition? Did you like that? (laughs) Take your scriptures and turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. It is exceedingly appropriate, maybe even providential, that George Gilpin is sitting here today. George Gilpin is our historian. He's been our historian for years, and he's done an exceptional job at taking the history of this church, which is long, 1792, and to my knowledge, he's the only one in those years who has really brought it all together, organized it, and we had a much better understanding of, of who we are as a church in our history because of him. And so it's appropriate that he is here today because when I got the call on Thursday or Friday that he was going to be here, I had already made up my mind to tell a little bit of our history. So on a brisk Sunday morning in November of 1883, Tobias Fernald, a member of Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, was rowing to church, and he saw a widow across the sound at Sandy Point over here in Mount Desert trying to drive her cow out of her garden. The fence had broken, and the cow had gotten out and was treading along in her garden. So, so he decided to, to divert his course and go and help her. And so he rode over to Sandy Point, and he helped to put the cow back in the pasture, and, and he, he helped mend her fence so the cow wouldn't come right back out and into her garden. And then he, began, he continued on and got to church. He was shocked the next Sunday when he was brought up on charges of breaking the Sabbath. When given the chance to answer the charge, dear Tobias said that he would do the deed again, quote unquote, because it was not wrong. Over a year later, fast forward a year later, December 2nd of 1834, Tobias Fernald was excommunicated from this church for breaking the Sabbath. Isn't that crazy? We hear stories like that. That's a real-life example story in this church of being excommunicated for breaking the Sabbath. But it begs the question, doesn't it? It begs the question, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? What does it mean to actually rest on the Sabbath, which which he was accused of breaking? People have struggled with this question for millennia. I mean, today we ask questions like, can we play sports on Sunday? How about mowing your lawn? Can you do that? How about vacuuming the rug? Are you breaking the Sabbath? Are you resting when you do that? Can you go out to lunch? Because, you know, when you're going out to lunch, you're actually making somebody else work on the Sabbath. You see, it gets a little tricky, doesn't it? Once you start asking these questions, you start going down this path, don't we? 
Maybe a better question is, maybe a reset question is, what exactly did God intend when he told us to rest on the Sabbath? Well, today in our text, Jesus has the opportunity to tell us about that. So please look with me starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. God's word says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat them. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He did this so they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more valuable is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him. Heavenly Father, pray that you will become greater and I will become lesser. Speak to your people through this text. Help us to understand what it is to rest in you, what you intended all along for the Sabbath. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've heard of the term denouement, I'm sure. It's a literary term. It it, it describes the part of the narrative where the, the middle plot has come to an end and it transitions into what we call the beginning of the end. That's really where we are in Matthew right now. We're at the denouement, the beginning of the end. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching and preaching widely. People have been, and he's been experiencing relative popularity. He's had some discussions, some run-ins with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We've talked about those. But starting right here, they begin not to see him anymore as an itinerant preacher or, or a traveling rabbi, or, or, or somebody who is a, a miraculous healer, they begin to see him as an enemy. They begin to plot for his demise, his destruction, someone to be done away with. And it really comes to the head right here with this discussion about the Sabbath. The context of Jesus' actions here, if you look at your scripture, is found in the last three verses of chapter 11. 
This is what Jesus is reacting to. This is what Je- Jesus is, is, is why he is doing what he's doing in the verses that we just read. If you look there, you, you see that Jesus implored the people to come to him. All you who are uh, labor and, and, and burdened, and he will give you rest. Come to him, for he is gentle and lowly. Come to him, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light, he said. But what does this all mean? He doesn't say that in a vacuum. What is Jesus saying when he talks about yokes and burdens and rest? Well, Jack, uh, Jesus is actually going to show them right here. First, he shows them through the corruption of the Sabbath. The corruption of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was one of the hubs of Jewish life. The fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 28. The only commandment that didn't have a moral application. It was purely ceremonial. There God wrote, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, he says. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor your alien within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath, along with the sacrifices, were the centerpieces of the Jewish religion. I mean, think about it. Every week, it was going to be that rhythm. Their whole week was built around the Saturday, their Sabbath. The whole week was, was building up to the Sabbath. It was given by God to help them reorient their lives to God. It was given to them as a way to conform to the image of God. They were, they were able to, in this way, rest like their creator. It was given to them as a relief from the curse of Genesis 3. If you remember that, one of the curses that comes out of the fall is you are going to work, you're going, the labor, the work that you have been given to do now is by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be hard. So what does God do? You know, wherever there's judgment in, in, in the Old Testament, there's always mercy. You've always got to look for the mercy. The mercy God embeds here is in the Sabbath. Just rest. It operates much like the believer, the life in the life of the believer today. The Lord's day is given to us as a graceful provision from a loving God. Just like the Sabbath was for the Jews. But the Jews over the centuries began asking a lot of the same questions that we asked, didn't they? What is rest? Okay. Exodus 20, rest, don't work. What does that mean? What type of activities fall outside that? What does work even mean? Let's define work. So the Jewish rabbis, what they did is is they began to answer that question. 
They begin to answer the people. And we're tempted to do the same thing, aren't we? Sitting here today, what part of you, how much of you are sitting there and the the thing that you're waiting for me to say is, here's what you do and here's what you don't do. Here are the boundaries. You're waiting for that. And maybe you might get a little of that later. Or maybe not. You're asking, Blake, tell me, can my kids play sports on Sunday? Right? The little of you that's asking that question or one similar to it. Unlike me, the rabbis answered that question. They began to make lists of prohibited activities. They created 39 categories of work. Things like carrying and burning and writing and sewing and shearing and washing and planting and plowing and reaping and threshing and widowing and end and end and end. They created these categories of work. They even collected the teachings of these rabbis and put them into a nice bound book called the Talmud. And there's 24 juicy chapters just waiting for you to read on things that you can, should do and things you shouldn't do. And each of our hearts, there's a little bit of each of our hearts that goes, oh, I want to read that. Perhaps you've heard some of these. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard some of these. A good Jew could not travel more than you could walk on a Sabbath, and that was considered about a thousand yards. So if you walked anything further than a thousand yards on the Sabbath, you were sinning. You could not carry a load whatsoever. No load. You couldn't carry anything. If you wanted to get your coat from one room to another, you had to put it on, walk into the next room, and take it off. You couldn't carry your coat. That was working. That was carrying a load. That was sin. You couldn't do any form of agriculture. Down to the minutest detail... I mean, God forbid that a bug flew into your mouth and you spit it out. Now, you were lucky if that spit hit a hard rock. Because if it hit soft dirt and made the slightest furrow in that dirt, you know what that was considered? Plowing. And you just broke the Sabbath. As you can see, the Jews took abstaining from work Resting on the Sabbath so seriously. You know, they took it so seriously that it eventually cost them their civilization. In 63 AD, the Roman general Pompey lay siege to Jerusalem. They began to build their siege ramp to breach the walls. But they found that they were attacked as they began to build this ramp. So the general, Pompey, got smart. He noticed that the Jews didn't do anything on Saturdays. And so he started building his ramp exclusively on their Sabbath. And as the Jews rested, the ramp got closer and closer and closer until it finally breached the wall. 
the Romans poured in and the Jews were enslaved. You see, that's what happens when you start answering the question, what is work? You get enslaved by it. It leads to legalism. It leads to judgmentalism. It leads to Pharisaism. And that's exactly what's on display here, isn't it, with Jesus? The Pharisees see the disciples going through the fields and they go, aha, ha ha ha. Look at what they're doing. They're going through the fields and they're picking the grains and they're rubbing them in their hands like this to, to, to take the husk off. And they're, pop, they're blowing the husk away and then popping the grains in their mouth. A lot like if you eat uh, shelled peanuts, you do something very similar. And the Pharisees go ballistic. Verse 2, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. To them, the disciples were breaking the Sabbath laws in at least, at least three categories. They were picking, so they were reaping. They were rubbing, so they were threshing. And they were blowing the husk away, so they were winnowing. What we see here is pure, unadulterated legalism, right? Turning a good gift of God, the Sabbath rest, a good gift. Distorting it into a work. Turning what was meant for joy and refreshment into a burden. They take in that which was intended for man's good and enjoyment and and put a heavy yoke on their shoulders. They'd taken something that God intended for their good and made it confusing and condemning. Richard Foster writes, nothing can choke the heart and soul out of a walk with God than legalism. It's true. Nothing can choke it out. It distorts. It deforms. Jacob and I were in my office this week and and uh, we were chatting about some favorite shows, and one of the things we have in common is we love the old Twilight Zones. And there's an old Twilight Zone where this, these um, uh, sons and daughters of this wealthy man, this dying wealthy man, come to, uh, to the reading of his will. He's still alive, and he asks that they come as he's dying and, the, and they read the will and, and one of the things, one of the stipulations that he puts on them getting his rich inheritance is that they wear these, these grotesque masks until midnight that night. If you've seen this one, you know. They put these masks on and, and they, they're just grotesque. Each one is individual, but they're grotesque. And they, but they have to wear them until the stroke of midnight. And at midnight, they can take them off and receive their inheritance. And these are spoiled and greedy kids. And all they're doing, they're just going through these motions in order to get that money. And if you remember, the stroke of midnight comes and the father dies. And they're overjoyed because they're going to, to get all of his money. 
And they take off these masks, and their faces had become conformed to the grotesqueness of the mask. Isn't that what legalism does to us, brothers and sisters? It eventually deforms your faith. It distorts your reactions, your relationships, your love. It distorts your life. It distorts and corrupts your soul. distorts your heart, puffs up your pride, and it poisons your words. But Christ gives us a corrective for legalism right here. You know what that corrective is? Mercy. The corrective is mercy. That's what we see here. Brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how much I struggled with this text this week. This was a hard text for me. The Sabbath is so deep. There's so much to say. There's so many implications in our life about the law, about Sabbatarianism, about the Old and New Covenant. I was talking with Jacob this week about about it, and, and he said, have you... Have you considered situational ethics? You know, my reaction was inside. Oh, great. Another thing to consider. How am I going to fit that in? Although there are many implications, I think Jesus' point is pretty simple here. The way out of legalism is mercy. The way, out, the way to temper our law-driven hearts is mercy. The way to temper the do's and don'ts of the Sabbath is mercy. That's actually the corrective that Jesus gives here. And he gives them three examples of that from the Old Testament. The first one is found in 1 Samuel 21. He quotes there. This is when, if you remember, David is on the run from Saul. Saul has turned against him and wants to kill him. He's jealous of him. So Saul is in, runs, flees. And he flees to a a city called Nob. And that was where the tabernacle was set up at the time. And he gets there and he and his men are famished. And so he asks the priest there, Ahimelech, he asks them, do you have any food? And and Ahimelech says, no, I have no food. I I only have the showbread. And the showbread, if you remember, are the 12 loaves of bread that are baked every week and then placed in the holy place in front of the menorah. It represented the 12 tribes of Israel in God's presence. And those 12 12 loaves were to stay there all week, but then on on the Sabbath, they were to be replaced with new loaves. And, And the priests were given those 12 old loaves as food. And the only the priests could eat the showbread. Nobody else, only the priests. But if you read that story in 1 Samuel 21, you see that the priest gave the bread to David, and David took it and shared it with his mighty men, and they ate. And Scripture never condemns him for it. Mercy tempers 
It's legalism. The next example, he, he says there, he, he takes the examples of just the priests working on the Sabbath, right? He says, oh, have you not read that the, on the law, in the law, on so the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? Work, and yet are guiltless, he says. They're responsible, the priests were responsible for preparing the sacrifices all week. On the Sabbath, they were especially busy, because everybody was coming and bringing sacrifices, lifting carcasses in the, onto the altar, breaking the Sabbath by carrying, butchering the animals. This that Sabbath was a busy time for the priests. And yet, in verse 5, Jesus says, they're guiltless. Mercy helps us gives us the right lens to interpret the law well. That's exactly what Jesus says in verse 7 when he quotes Hosea 6. 6. If you had known what these words mean, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, meaning his disciples. See, what Hosea is doing is, Hosea is not nullifying the law of sacrifice. What Hosea is doing is he's pointing to a higher principle. A principle that has to go along with your interpretation of the law. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying that the Sabbath laws are trivial or unimportant or to be overlooked or to be ignored at a whim. He's not saying that at all. Jesus is doing is exposing a principle that they are totally ignoring. Mercy. The one ingredient that they need in applying the law well. One that Ahimelech and the priests of the temple seem to know. A principle that our church in 1834 seemed to forget. A principle that we need deeply in our lives to help temper our legalistic hearts. Because that's the natural bent of our hearts, brothers and sisters, is to legalism. Give me the do's or don'ts. Give me the box to live in, and I will force other people into that box too. Because I have God's word on my sight. Can you hear it, brothers and sisters? That's what happens to your heart. Without mercy. And Jesus illustrates that perfectly in verses 9 through 14. Here the Pharisees try to trap him into breaking the Sabbath laws in a synagogue in public. There's a man present with a withered hand. And they openly challenge him. Is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They know what he's going to do. They, they're just setting the trap. They're, they're pushing the jaws open and placing that, that lever there so that Jesus will step in and be crushed. And Jesus applies mercy and heals the man. It's been said, happier those whose self-centered lives have been crushed and reshaped by the Master's hand to be full of mercy. 
Blessed are you if you've been crushed and reshaped in that way. We need to be full of mercy or else we will become the crushers. See, without mercy, you'll be captured and imprisoned by the law. Without mercy, you will read in your private devotions, you will read the law, and you will apply it to others. Without mercy, you'll disregard a person in order to fulfill the law. Without mercy, you'll start asking about the do's and don'ts. And you'll become more concerned about the do's and don'ts than you are about your brothers and sisters. Without mercy, you'll start thinking that man was made for the Sabbath and not the Sabbath for man. Without mercy, you'll see the Sabbath as a burden and not a gift. Without a large dose of mercy, you'll only see the law and overlook the lawgiver. And that's exactly what they did. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. They were so wrapped up in the law, they were so unmerciful, that they didn't even see one greater than the temple standing before them. They, didn't, they, they couldn't see. They were blind to the one, the Lord of the Sabbath, standing right before them. They were so focused elsewhere, they overlooked right what was right before them. Larry McGurdy, known for his book Lonesome Dove, he wrote another book about the many roads he had driven on and the thousands of miles that he drove around in America. In the book, he recounts the memory of the place where he grew up in East Texas. He writes tenderly about his father, whom he says seldom had gone much further than the dusty roads near his dirt farm. Comparing his own travels to his father's localized life, McGurdy admits, quote, I've looked at many places quickly. My father looked at one place deeply. It's so easy to get distracted when we're talking about the Sabbath. It's so, so easy to start looking at all the many places quickly. The do's and the don'ts. When we should slow down and look at one place deeply. One person deeply. And that's Jesus Christ. Because he is the true Sabbath. That's, that's the point that he's making here. Remember what Jesus said again back in chapter 11, 28, 29, and 30. Come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's pointing, he's pointing to himself. Jesus is saying, I am the reason for the Sabbath. I am the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Look to me. Don't look at other places quickly. Look at me deeply. 
All those years of Sabbath rest each week was always meant to point to Jesus. That's what Paul's trying to teach the Colossian church in in the second chapter. He writes, therefore, do not let anyone judge you. Listen to this. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, he writes, is in Jesus Christ. He's doing the same thing. He's pointing right to them. Don't look at don't don't get distracted by all the noise, the white noise out there where the Sabbath is concerned. Look at one thing deeply. The Sabbath rest was established to lead people to Christ, to give people a foretaste. When you rest, you're getting a foretaste, a little, little taste on the tip of your tongue of what it's going to be like for eternity. That deep exhale, the lifting of the burden. The Sabbath was there to help people understand the gospel of Jesus Christ all along. Because we approach salvation much like we approach the Sabbath, don't we? We approach salvation a lot like we approach the Sabbath. We ask all the same questions, don't we? What do I need to do to be saved? How do I, how do I have to act? Tell me how I have to act. What do, what do I need to say to be saved? Please, please, Pastor, give me a list. I want you to notice I've, I've never given you a list today. Why? Because once we have a list of to-dos, we turn it into a work. That's what we do. That's what our hearts are inclined to do. You get a you get a one, two, three list, and all of a sudden you have something to work on. How many times has a brother or sister come up to you? You know, as you're discipling or after Bible study or after hearing sermons, say, boy, I have to work on that. We rely on ourselves and what we can do, even in salvation. We approach salvation much like an Alaskan man who recently attempted to cross the freezing waters of the channel of Juneau, Alaska, on a homemade duct tape built raft. When the winds picked up and the makeshift boat started taking on water, the Coast Guard had to come and rescue him. And all they found was that he had a paddle, his dog, and no life raft. I mean, no life jacket. Once we have a list, we begin to build our own boat, don't we? Aha, okay, I got it. We begin to construct our own life rafts being careful to obey all the do's and don'ts of the Sabbath, making sure we're living moral lives, making sure we're going to church. Let's check that box. Uh, i got to be kind and generous. Okay, there's the other box. By praying enough, doing enough good, fulfilling enough law to cross that channel. That's how we approach salvation. 
And Jesus says, what a heavy yoke that is. What an incredible burden you're creating for yourself. Jesus says, let me take that. Give that over to me. Allow me to do that. And that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news of the gospel. We can indeed rest because God has done all the work for us. Through through his perfectly lived sinless life. You know, we want all the to-dos so that we can build this life raft. And he says, I've built it already. I I did all the, the boxes that you want to check. It's fulfilled in me. I lived the perfect life. I pleased my Heavenly Father perfectly. Back in Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he did. He did so, so that we can exhale. So that we don't have to build our own life raft. He built the reliable raft by taking the heavy yoke of our punishment in his body. That's what 1 Peter 2 tells us. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. By his wounds, we are healed. He carried the heavy yoke of the cross that we deserve on his shoulders. He took the heavy yoke. He took the immense yoke of God's wrath poured out for sin, for your sin. He took the punishment of death in his body that we deserve in our own body. But he did not remain dead, but three days later, he rose from the dead. And he conquered sin and death that way. And the promise is... That if you believe, if you trust what Jesus has done, you will be saved. In other words, all who come to him and get into his boat that he made with his own flesh and blood, you will be saved. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he built the life draft for us. And all Jesus says is he looks at each one of us and says, come on in. Climb in. It's done. Climb in and it's safe to get from here to there. I just did a funeral yesterday. And at a funeral, it all comes so clear, doesn't it? Death is a great clarifier. And we're all basically concerned about getting from here to there. And Jesus says, I've made the way. I've done it, past tense. Climb in. I'll get you from here to there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you for your example. 
and thank you for the work that you have done on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.